0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero-emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at (laughs) hyundai.ie. Hi there, welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about the incredible fraud accusations against Nikola and its rolling trucks, Apple's new Peloton killer, and the reason why traditional valuation metrics just don't work in the modern market. So guys, every so often in this podcast, we come across a story that's just so wild that we can't wait to talk about it. And I'm really glad to say we have one of these stories for you today. Um, We're talking about a company that's focused specifically on the EV market, but incredibly, we're actually not talking about Elon Musk. We're talking about Nikola Motors. So Nikola Motors is a name that's become huge in the EV world over the past year, with its stock actually jumping more than sixfold in the first half of this year alone. Um, a recent announcement um, of a deal with General Motors, which would see the iconic car manufacturer taking an 11% stake in the company, was warmly received by the market as well. And it really looked like Nikola was becoming a real contender in the future for EV vehicles, even though it has yet to sell a single car However, a report by the short-selling firm Hindenburg Research last week has claimed that Nikola has been involved in a myriad of fraudulent activities, including questions over the qualifications of its Director of Hydrogen Production and Infrastructure and, most amazingly, a claim that a video posted last year by the company showcasing its Nikola 1 truck in motion was actually a setup with the truck being pushed down a hill instead of being powered by its own engine. Um Rory, I'm gonna to come to you first on this because we we've been pretty much laughing about this story for the past week. What the hell is going on at Nicola?
2: This is our work we work story of the year, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get a lot of mileage out of this, unlike uh Nicola's trucks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Can I also just one more before I start? I love that it was Hindenburg Research that broke this story on a hydrogen fuel cell company. That's yeah. just too perfect. <laughs> it's
1: it's really just the universe conspiring for the perfect story.
2: Yeah. So as you said, uh, Hindenburg Research published a short report just days after they'd announced this big deal with General Motors, which basically laid out a series of fraudulent behaviors that the company had undertaken over the last couple of years, and um, you already mentioned the video. Yeah, like anyone who watches that video, would they would be absolutely certain that that truck is being shown to drive along a highway and yeah. that it works, that it's a fully functioning truck. But uh, as we found out, that's, that was not the case. They brought it to a hilly section of the highway somewhere in America, put it up at the top and basically let it roll down the slope and uh, filmed it. So it looked like it was, it was moving under its own um, power.
1: Um- yeah, and I, I should probably just just hear mention that that Nikola came back with a rebuttal against you know Hindenburg's claims and said, and I quote, "We never stated the truck was driving under its own propulsion in the video, although the truck was designed just to do that."
2: Like okay, well, I'll, well, I'll I'll bang back with another quote, which is from the CEO, and this is from I believe back in 2016 at the launch event. In quotes, this thing fully functions and works, which is really incredible. Uh, we have since, well, Hindenburg have uh, alleged, and it's they've published text message exchanges which seem to show this that the truck wasn't functioning at all at that point, and that they never actually got it fully functioning at all. Instead, they moved into the the, the uh, pickup truck side of the business, and once they had the money, they realized that they didn't really need to go back to working on the Nikola one, so that it it wasn't yeah. they didn't want to essentially didn't want to waste resources on it, and. Um, now, like, I can't imagine how anyone would invest in this business after if these claims are true, and it, it does appear like they are true. Uh, I wasn't particularly au fait with the whole GM deal to begin with, because neither Nicola nor GM were companies that we were following closely. But since I've looked into it, I mean, there is some really interesting takes from people who do seem to know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, first of all, this deal with GM was absolutely terrible for Nicola. Like, it was... No one could understand why they'd done this, because this is supposed to be a company that has hydrogen fuel cell technology that's light years ahead of everyone else, and the deal was just lousy for them. You know, they were basically paying GM to build a car with their badge on it, and they weren't using the hydrogen cell technology that Nikola had, had uh, produced themselves. They were; It was all being built on the GM platform. And GM were basically getting a massive parts deal out of it because all the drivetrains and, and components were going to be GM components. So yeah. this definitely appears to have been a deal that was structured almost entirely to make Nikola come across as a plausible uh, automobile company. They well, we can't just get away it.
3: we can't get away from it rolling down the hill. We just can't. I mean, I was chatting with my friend Donald, who loves trucks, uh, about the whole tired affair, and his summation was that Nikola is basically a skateboard in the shape of a truck. (laughs) 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 And we were wondering if one of their vehicles will qualify for the Red Bull Soapbox race Uh, which is fairly well known in this part of the world, where according to the official rules, and I quote, the vehicle must have steering and braking capability. Teams are judged on both the time taken to complete the course, as well as creativity of their design and the showmanship of performance at the start of the race. Now, Nicola definitely has the showmanship (laughs) nailed, especially when they bring General Motors into the frame.
0: I, I, so I don't good. even know if
1: we can confirm <laughs> if the truck has braking ability, like it didn't show it stopping in the video, it could still be rolling That's down right. the hill out there in the desert.
2: Yeah, and look, what's what's interesting about this is, you know, it says an awful lot about the nature of innovation, or at least the nature of innovation as we have it today. You know, I'm reading Morgan Housel's excellent new book, I think you are as well, Emmett. Yeah. Um and there's a chapter in there about risk versus luck, you know, and... He's talking about Charles Vanderbilt, who built an entire railroad network. But he did it all by breaking pretty much every state law out there. Now, looking back on that and using resulting, we would go, oh, what a cheeky devil. Well done to him for uh, for getting away with it. But no one yeah. would today would suggest a business owner break the laws in order to build a business because you're going to end up in jail. Like that's The risk-reward payout it doesn't seem appropriate there. And I was reading back through... Uh, This made me think of Bad Blood and the whole Theranos scandal. And, uh, you know, what was really interesting about that book was that John Carew at the end, does seem to find some sort of kind of um, sympathy with Elizabeth Holmes. I just I pulled out a quick quote. He says at the end, by all accounts, she had a vision that she genuinely believed in and threw herself into realising But in in her all-consuming quest to be the second coming of Steve Jobs amid the gold rush of the unicorn boom, there came a point when she stopped listening to sound advice and beyond to cut corners. Her ambition was voracious and it broke no interference. If there was collateral damage on her way to riches and fame, so be it. And that seems to be like an awful lot of what's happening in Silicon Valley right now. You really fake it till you make it. You know, the line between visionary and fraudster is very thin. And it's usually the person who just... Lies enough until they get a, until they get something working that survives this whole mess. So um, yeah, Nicola, incredible story. I'm sure there'll be more. We've no idea what's going on with the SEC. I see the founder bought 1.4 million dollars worth of shares there the other day to try and pump up the stock price. I mean, his his net worth is way over three or four billion. So yeah, uh, it's not it's not much of a of a signal there. But yeah, this will definitely be one of the stories of the year. I'm sure.
1: Absolutely. And the, the fact that, you know, the the news is kind of broken by Hindenburg Research, which which are a short selling firm, I believe, um, that, that kind of brought up another question for me. And Emmett, I might throw this over to you is with these kind of short seller reports like this, how careful do we have to be if, you know, the company has a financial benefit in the stock price of the company it's talking about depreciating? Uh, where where do we draw the line between you know this being you know a, a revelation you know facts news and this being a financial incentive for a short seller?
3: Mm. Mm. Well, we have to keep in the back of our mind that short seller reports are written to serve their purpose. Now, really, what the 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 variable is how factual are these reports? So, you when you see a short seller's report on a business that you've taken an interest in and feel optimistic about, based on what you've read under strategy, their mission, their addressable market, their barriers to entry, and you basically put your money down on the table, along comes a giant institution has a bench of researchers who very possibly from the outside have decided they want to short this business and go seeking facts to support that uh, that report. So um, yeah, I I used to take them with an absolute pinch of salt um, and ha- give them no credence whatsoever. And i read short settle reports um, in, like, I suppose, an acknowledgement that it might be correct, but I don't. Yeah. It doesn't change my course or my decision or my action. It informs my thinking. And occasionally, as we've seen in the not uh, too far past, they're right um, and you just get on with it.
1: It reminded me of uh, Citroën Research, who I think have have issued about three or four short-selling reports on uh, Shopify. It's not really working yeah. for them at the yeah. moment.
2: No. I i take I take Emmett's point there, but I mean, you've got to remember as well, you know, if, if I own a, a stock and I publish a stock of the month report on it, I have a financial incentive in it, in it uh, appreciating in value. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I, I agree with you. There are bad actors out there, but I think short sellers as well form an important, important part of kind of the market In terms of, you know, someone's out there trying to find fraudulent companies and, you know, sure, they have financial incentive behind them. But don't we all when it comes to the stock market?
3: Yeah, yeah. But the only thing, though, and just on that is that when you or I speak about a stock, you know, we're acting with integrity where we don't we don't decide we're recommending a stock. We find a business that looks like its positioned for greatness and we then recommend it. And we just don't know if in these short selling houses, is there like have they pre-decided which one yeah. it looks like it's run too far too fast and let's bring this one down to earth a bit but i totally get you you just don't know
2: and there's that there's always that kind of immediate drop from a short seller as well that people can yeah. have bought puts on or something so yeah look it's a it's a shady industry but i think there's both good actors and bad actors yeah. out there yeah
3: yeah
1: absolutely and i am I'm, I'm gonna guess that there's gonna be a lot more to about this story so stay tuned to future episodes um Probably the other biggest news of the past two weeks was the announcement earlier this week that Oracle has beaten out the likes of Microsoft and Twitter in the race to nab TikTok's US operations. This has been a long-running saga, but the deal, which was finally announced on Sunday night, will see Oracle become TikTok's technology partner, reportedly leaving ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, with a majority stake in the business still. Um, It also appears that TikTok's global business will become a company based in the US that will still remain a unit of ByteDance. Um, Rory, I'll come to you first. Does this make sense you Oracle becoming a partner of TikTok like this?
2: Uh whatever bit it making sense. I think what's been exposed over the last week is that this was not in any way a mergers and acquisitions deal. It was not in any way a national security issue. This is political theater having yeah. being performed right in front of our eyes. You know, it was you know noticeable that in July ByteDance seemed very happy to sell their U.S. operations to Microsoft. <laughs> that was all kind of going ahead, and we all thought that deal was was done and dusted. Then the U.S. administration got involved. They didn't want a minority shareholder in ByteDance, so they were basically cutting ByteDance out of all the upside of the company. And they wanted this kind of sweetheart kicker that was going to go to the U.S. Treasury, which Microsoft, and shame on them, actually said they would do. So, yeah. Um, that, and look, when that happens, You've got to think of this from the Chinese government's point of view. They were not going to let this happen. That's when they, they uh, stepped in and said, hold on a second. No, that's not happening. You're not going to bully us into selling one of our most valuable companies and you know, demand a kicker to the U.S. Treasury. And I, I believe they, this is when they started coming out with these new laws regarding what kind of technology can be exported from China. And as one source close to the company said, you can buy the car, but you can't buy the engine. The algorithm at this point at that point was not for sale which meant Microsoft's deal was totally in uh, ruins. And Oracle stepped in and basically said, okay, we won't buy the company, but you know, do you want a cloud infrastructure deal that'll kind of somehow make people think that you're no longer a national security threat? And the, the Trump administration has agreed to this. And it's it's yeah, we don't know what the terms of the deal are yet. Probably we'll know them by the time this podcast goes out, but it's as if Oracle is kind of acting as a sort of babysitter, Um, The company remains Chinese. The algorithm remains in China. All the things that we talked about previously that were actually concerning have not been addressed in any way. Uh, And yeah, it seems like it just became a political issue. Was the administration going to ban a massively popular app with 50 million daily active users in the US alone, which is 15% of the population, uh, right before an election? Probably not. This kind of let them save face a bit. And um China's pretty happy that they have basically called the bluff and one in this case if you, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Emmett, what were your thoughts on the deal? Um were you disappointed yeah. Twitter Twitter didn't get their bid in in the end?
3: <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels like an anti-climax. A marriage with Oracle is just not as much fun to talk about as Microsoft or Twitter and even, you know, taking a strategic assessment of what TikTok does for each individual business just was actually is quite interesting you know we three here in the podcast had numerous debates about you know what would tiktok do for twitter what would tiktok do for microsoft from a relevancy perspective and from market penetration and all this kind of stuff and really as you've rightfully said there rory it feels like it's it's a political the- theater at this stage and and apparently president trump said uh on tuesday uh which was uh, yesterday uh, as we're recording on Wednesday, that. Uh, his administration would make a decision on the pending deal pretty soon, and that he he kind of emphasized his respect for for Larry Ellison, who I think is like the fifth wealthiest guy in the world. So really, we're 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 down to just stripping down, stripping out what made TikTok exciting and valuable, which is their algorithm, and it seems that they've kind of reverse engineered in a solution. So, really, uh, it feels to me like it is and has been a storm in a teacup.
2: Absolutely. Worth noting that uh, Larry Allison is one of the few in Silicon Valley who's a major Trump supporter. Just a
3: side mm-hmm, note. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Just putting that, that fact out there. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on then because i'm sure that's another story we'll be returning to in the not too distant future um as you mentioned Emmett, we're recording this on wednesday and last night apple had its famed fall or autumn as we call it over here event um, this year we saw no new iphone strangely enough but what the company did reveal is what people are already calling a peloton killer rory i can't mention peloton without coming over to you should you, are you worried as a peloton shareholder
2: well, it's funny that on, was it Monday, I wrote the Stock the Month report where I talked about Peloton being the Apple of fitness, um, and yeah. it, seems, it seems Apple had a problem with that. <laughs> They've decided the they want to be the Apple of fitness. Um, now, look, we've had this discussion on the podcast many times before. Anytime you hear uh, company X is going to has created a company Y killer, that's to me is usually a bullish sign, uh, the famous yeah. example being uh, Etsy and uh, handmade by Amazon. Um, the reason Apple are getting into the fitness game is because they've looked at Peloton and said, well, wow, that's a great business. We should get into this." Yeah. Um, and look, I you know I I have looked over the Fitness Plus offering, and um, if you ask me, there's a little bit of crossover with Peloton's digital app subscription, the twelve ninety nine a month one, but it, there is pretty much no crossover between that and Peloton's Connected Fitness thirty nine dollars a month. Uh, which you know the main functionality of which is being is integrating with the in-home device having live classes uh, and having a network there of like-minded fitness enthusiasts you know basically what Fitness Plus is let's be honest here is they've taken the myriad of free YouTube uh, workouts that you can get and basically monetize them uh, you know as I mentioned, yoga by Adrian, who is a, is a famous yoga instructor. She has 8.3 million subscribers on her YouTube channel. I and think I've it's fair paid.
1: to say she was, she was the real hero of the, the coronavirus <laughs> lockdown.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is what they're, they're pre-recorded videos. Now, there is a little, there's a little integration with the Apple Watch where they um they link up with the screen, whatever screen you're watching the the workout on and you can see your health metrics and, you know, if you're if you're struggling, they'll give you a little inspirational boost, you know, keep going for 30 seconds, you can do this. Um, but you know, it's it's nowhere near the functionality that Peloton has with their connected fitness stuff. What I think Apple's event really showcased is that they are moving into this recurring revenue bundle that Scott Galloway calls a rundle. I know you hate that that term, James. It's but awesome. um <laughs> yeah, so they're launching they've launched Apple One, which uh, at its most basic gives you Apple Music, Apple TV Plus. Uh, 50 gigs of storage and the new Apple Arcade game for $9 a month for an individual. It's $15 a month for a family. And then for $30 a month, you can top it up with Fitness Plus and their new Apple Plus service. And this is all about, I mean, we know what they're doing here. They are trying to change the narrative. Um, As I I wrote the Daily Insight today, since 2015, Apple's revenue has gone up somewhere around 17%. Uh, but their stock's gone up about four x. So yeah. the reason that's happened is because they've had massive multiple expansion back in 2015. They were trading at around 11 P. Today they're trading at 35 P. And that's because they have they've moved transactional customers into recurring revenue customers. So now instead of having people who are buying a one time device at a thousand bucks, what they want is all the people who have watches, iPhones, iPads. They want them paying a hundred dollars a year for fitness, for uh, TV entertainment, for music entertainment, for video games. And that's that's how you change the narrative on Wall Street. That's how you turn a single purchase story into a recurring revenue story. And that's why their stock price has exploded over the last couple of years.
1: Absolutely. Emmett, I want to come to you as the CEO of a business that runs on recurring revenue and subscriptions like this. How important or, or how different is it to, to get those customers in on a recurring basis?
3: Yeah. And... Uh, thank you for that (laughs) uh, (laughs) well it is difficult because nobody nobody likes there's a greater sense of inertia and reluctance when you know you're clicking on something that's going to pull Five, ten, twenty 20 bucks out of your account every month. Um, and certainly, as you rightfully said, as a CEO of a business in that space, it's the businesses that do it without tapping you on the shoulder to tell you they're doing it. So what yeah. I mean by that is if you subscribe to an app that has a monthly charge, you will get an email from Apple every month to say, tomorrow we're taking 10 bucks. Whereas if you go to Netflix or if you go to Audible, you sign up online, using their architecture and their terms and conditions and they simply take the 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever it is per month and those two different models as subtle as it is and make a world of difference in in how long people stay around because they're not getting 12 reminders a year that they're they're being charged for something but from a valuation perspective like software as a service As we all know, and as we've kind of focused on over the last, I suppose, five plus years in my Wall Street is an incredibly um, prosperous area for us to fish as stock investors because it creates a business with predictable revenue lines and ones that you can extrapolate into the future and then start to add on other uh, potential products that possibly have a higher price point. So you can see why Scott Galloway, you can see why Tim Cook, you can see why the world, whether it's Peloton or whether it's Mirror um, by Lululemon or whether, whatever it is, they all want to get a little bit every month as opposed to a lot up front. Now, of course, the razor and blade model is very exciting. Peloton, a lot up front, plus a little every month thereafter. Um, so, Rory, I'm not saying anything against Peloton. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well. speaking of companies that might not have been too happy with Apple's announcement, another company that came to mind is Spotify, who I believe already complained about Apple's new One service, which bundles Apple Music plus a load more services in together for a price that's not that much more than Spotify charges for just its streaming service. Rory, do you think Spotify are, are right to be worried about this?
2: Oh, yeah, we're sure. We've had this conversation plenty of times before. This is a uh, massive... Uh, company with monopolistic powers basically pressing down on the little guy, and Spotify yeah. have our right to be concerned and the right to be angry about it because this is going to be a, a, a challenge for them going forward. Um, I maintain that Spotify is a better product than Apple Music. I think they've got a loyal user base, and um, so we'll see how much price comes into play when people are thinking about switching over. I, I you know, the Apple TV Plus I still don't think is that exciting a, a product. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see how they build it out over the over the years. But like as Amazon did with Prime, they're going to continually add incremental value to this this bundle, and that's yeah. when Spotify, Spotify, and you know possibly Netflix and possibly other uh, companies need to start getting worried. I think you
1: you made the analogy once. Well, maybe you didn't make it. You robbed the analogy once of Amazon, <laughs> and they're like a company with a, a massive air tank that can go underwater for longer than other companies. And I think that's
2: kind mm-hmm. of applicable here. Yeah, no, I did steal that from Scott Galloway.
3: (laughs) Maybe he stole it from you. I think you need to...
1: He's probably not listening to this, so just take it. It's fine. Yeah, that's true. Uh, (laughs) Let's move on and take a look at some other things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. So earlier this week, as Rory mentioned, we published the latest edition of the Stock of the Month podcast. This is an exclusive podcast that you can only find in the My Wall Street app where Rory and I discuss our latest Stock of the Month pick and get into more detail on the reasons why we believe it's a great investment. Um, I was going to kind of do a big teaser and say this this month's pick was a, a favourite of Rory's, but I think Rory's probably given it away already. But <laughs> seeing as they've had a quarterly report, in the meantime, you should get in and listen to that and hear what Rory thought of Peloton's recent quarterly report. Um, Emmett, you're also hosting a live webinar next week that you want to mention.
3: Yeah, that's right. Next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Dublin time, which is midday in New York time and 9 a.m. California time, I'm holding a workshop called The Number One Way to Measure and Improve Your Success as an Investor. And in that workshop, I'm just going to, I guess, put a spotlight on something that really changes your overall returns when you've mastered it. And, um, you know, it's really harnessing one of Einstein's secret obsessions, which he had On doubling his money and how to double it again faster so uh what i'll be talking about next wednesday um at midday new york time is i guess the only metric you need to measure your portfolio's performance with and the only metric that certainly from kind of checking your own performance that you really need to know and at the end of the at the end of the the show or of the seminar i'll be sending out the spreadsheet that i use and have used for very many years uh, in order for people to plug in their own numbers and see how they're actually doing
1: Sounds good. Um, So I'll include the registration link for that free webinar in the notes for today's show.
3: It's mywallstreet.com/backslash/workshop. Mywallstreet.com/backslash/workshop.
1: There you go. Make sure to sign up for it. Uh, Let's move on to Jargon Busters. And Emma, I'm going to come to you again. The first question we have is about SPACs or SPACs. Um, Recent this week, we heard news that uh, the real estate company Opendoor is set to go public via a SPAC. Can you explain to us what exactly a SPAC is and how they work, I suppose.
3: Sure, yeah. So as many of our listeners know, an alternative to an IPO is a direct listing. And we've spoken about that in the past. And it's how Spotify and I think Slack listed. Um, A third way or a third way to get lists on the stock market is a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC for short. Um, And it is an alternative to traditional IPOs as a way for a company to get onto the stock market. And these SPACs are also known as Blank check companies so um, there have been a number of high-profile companies that have gone to market with a SPAC which I'll explain in a moment so companies like DraftKing, Virgin Galactic, Nikola and now as you mentioned James Opendoor have all used SPACs to enter life on the public markets Um, so here's how they work a sponsor who's usually a name and prosperous individual from the world of business creates a shell company which uh, he or she uses to raise money from investors. That company floats, the SPAC floats, and then it goes and finds and merges with another privately held operating company, following which shareholders in the SPAC become shareholders in the previously private company, uh, and now it is listed. So what it really allows the owners of privately held businesses To do is list really quickly get a cash injection and not have to go through what is a huge amount of work in order to list your business and now if if you know chris kindle you know uh if you're if christmas is your thing and you do gift exchange in december with your folks um a good SPAC is, like, if you invest in a good SPAC, it's a little like being in a Chris Kindle with people with good taste. So, like, you know, no matter what you're going to get, <laughs> it's okay. So, like, one one SPAC we we uh, invested in, uh, in the Horizon service, which I run for my Wall Street, was uh, pal Hapathea's Social Capital Hedo Sophia 2, which is a mouthful, but it's also now known as IPOB. And IPO B, well, previously IPO A became Virgin Galactic, which we were invested in. IPO B, it was announced yesterday, is becoming Open Door, which is um, a story unto itself. So in twenty twenty, and by the way, that picks up fifty percent. Uh, <laughs> in twenty twenty, uh, <laughs> plug. In twenty twenty, more than fifty spacs have been formed in the U.S. Um, and at the beginning of August, so I'm working on slightly other data. Uh, about 22 billion dollars has been ha- has been raised with SPACs, and and about a month ago, Bill Ackman, who as we know is the founder of Pershing Square Capital, sponsored his own SPAC and raised four billion, making it the largest ever SPAC. And I think he marched on into Brian Chesky, um, and Joe Gebbia, the founders of Airbnb, and said, "Hey, do you want to use this?" And I think that didn't work out as um as bill ackman would have wished i think uh airbnb will do it on their own so specs are the third way if you like uh, to 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 float your company on the stock exchange and i think they're the way with the minimal amount of drama for the management team and the business that's about to go onto market
1: Emmett, you've come up with a lot of analogies in in your time, but I think that Chris Kindle one is definitely my favorite so far. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for that. Uh, Let's move on to the next question. I'm going to throw this to both of you. Rory, you can go first. Um, So this is a question about traditional valuation metrics for modern companies. You know, when when we look at companies, especially high growth companies that might not be profitable at the moment, um, can we use traditional valuation metrics to analyze those?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's that would be very hard to try and extrapolate the what what we people were using back in Benjamin Graham's day uh, to the kind of companies we see at the moment. You know, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett once used the analogy of um, if you had a steel company, let's say a steel company in Detroit, and you wanted to expand your operations to China, you know, that's you're talking about a huge operation to ship steel over there, establish yeah. distribution, maybe establish a factory, you know, it's not an easy uh, thing to do. If Facebook wants to start operations, uh, China's probably not a good example, but if Facebook <laughs> wants to start operations in Russia, for example, they literally push a button, like that. Yeah. There's no, and so you do see these companies, you know, increasingly we see news reports of Company X being the fastest company to ever hit a uh, 100 billion in market cap or to hit revenue of 5 billion. The, these stories are popping up all the time because companies are growing much faster because there is just easier ways. The internet has enabled us to provide products to people much faster, much more efficiently. And you're seeing companies today which had margins that were unthinkable back in the days of, of Graham and Dodd. And, and, and so, yeah, it's, you know, there are obviously crossovers. The principles of valuations still remain intact, But you really do need to kind of stretch out your imagination. You know, you can't be looking at a company today as you would look at a company 70 years ago, even if they're in the exact same industry. Even if we're talking about a steel company today, you you couldn't possibly value them the same way you'd value a steel company 70 years ago. It's just there's too much has changed in the world. And therefore, you do need to update the numbers that you're looking at, are the numbers, or the the ranges that you're going to expect from a from a traditional valuation metric. Valuation metrics are great tools, but of course they don't tell you the full story. And yeah. the full story takes a lot more work than that. You, you know, you can't just invest based on ratios.
1: What hmm. about you, Emmett? I know you've a, a big doorstop of a book called Traditional Valuation Metrics.
3: <laughs> yeah, actually, I have here on my desk, as you can see, and we're on we're on Zoom here. I have Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Seagal 5th edition of course the very <laughs> discerning person's choice but um, this is is a great book to sit on your bookshelf and gather dust and occasionally prop up your laptop um, but it's a good book too to open um, and, on, <laughs> and and, and uh, <laughs> but in chapter 11 of 5th edition folks on Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Seagal there is all the different ways you can go about um, valuing the overall market and companies, specifically he talks about P ratio, earnings yield, you know, CAPE ratio for the overall market, you know, aggregation bias, and the Fed model, earnings yield model, bond yields, corporate profit model, GDP, discount models, book values, everything. And there's a nice, short, snappy explanation of all the different ways you can go about. Valuing a business and it kind of when I was looking through it it brought me back to a summer job I had in 1995 where um where for the first time in my life I saw Microsoft Excel I mean I'd been I'd been in college for three years at this stage and I was went into a bank and believe me I cannot tell you how mind-numbingly bored I was (laughs) and they there was this thing called Microsoft Excel I couldn't believe that this machine this mechanical discounted cash flow (laughs) calculator that i built up this uh, dcf calculator with microsoft excel and um took printouts of all the different businesses that i kind of um uh, experimented or tried to extrapolate their 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 value their true intrinsic value with this spreadsheet and they all had the uniform kind of They all had the same common kind of attribute of being massively wrong about three years later, because I did keep a check to see if they were right. And what what I would say about traditional valuation is that the ways in which all these different academics and genuine investment geniuses have come up with valuation techniques, I wouldn't say... They become less relevant, but they become harder to get right. And I do think, and I agree with Rory's point. Like, it's it's worthwhile and useful to get your head around valuation. What, where could this go? But in in my Wall Street and in some of the greatest stock investment services in the world, and I, I David Gardner of the Motley Fool brings to mind, who I think is probably the greatest living stock picker. Um, like, rarely have I seen. Um, a price target come into actually never have I seen a price target come into his conversation we don't use it in our conversation here what we simply do is find market beating businesses who have barriers to entry and we take a strategic look at these businesses and assess the competitive marketplace and how big is the market and can they feasibly address that market and then the value the price that is reflected ultimately in the share price, it will come eventually, if you're yeah. right. But certainly, um, my long-winded way and my long-winded response is, um, I don't do a whole lot of it, but I acknowledge its importance. And I have studied it and done it for very many years. And, and, and I spent a whole year doing it when I did a um, uh, master's in, in in finance. But frankly, I, I learned it and disposed of it afterwards
1: okay cool thanks for that the last question we have here we might just touch on this quickly as we're running out of time is a question about the dangers of stretching your portfolio too thin so emmet what i think they meant here is you know when you're trying to build up to a diversified portfolio of at least 12 stocks and you see these new companies coming all the time that excite you what kind of strategy should you take in in you know building out your portfolio and ensuring that mm-hmm. you're not spreading mm-hmm. your capital too thin
3: yeah well i think it's a two-factor equation it's if it's a function of where you are in your life um so there are two variables i think when you're designing your portfolio which is number one approximately how much money am i going to put into each stock and number two how many stocks am i going to own and those two variables change as you get older um so your disposable income will change hopefully for the better as you get older and therefore, a full position might move from what starts out to be 100 bucks or 200 bucks to 2,000 bucks or 20,000 bucks or a million bucks. Um, yeah. And that is in your mind, that's a notional number. Nobody's there to say you're right or wrong. But I think as an investor, you you need to first get a grapple on what is the amount of money that feels like a full position for me, which is a chunky amount of of change in my life. And then how many of these do I want to have now? Stretching yourself or your portfolio too thin is a very personal consideration. And some of the greatest investors the world has ever seen, like Peter Lynch, had thousands of stocks in the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Yeah. Some others are hyper concentrated with twelve. And we at my Wall Street say you should aim for twelve. There's twelve months in a year. You can spend a year building a portfolio, and then you're you are properly diversified. But really. For me, and this is my personal answer the correct number of stocks for me in a portfolio where I can keep, uh, I suppose, my understanding of all the businesses in a nice contained ball is around 22 stocks. And you know what? For some people, be 30s. For some people, be 50. But really, stretching yourself too thin is a personal question. And it comes down to how much money will I put per share? And how many of these am I going to buy? And we think a nice rule of thumb for heaven is yeah aim for 12 and then see how it goes
1: okay cool thanks very much for that uh let's move on to the elevator pitch so as we've kind of talked about already the second half of this year looks set to be packed full of ipos including some huge names like airbnb palantir snowflake and plenty more um so my elevator pitch for you guys today is which ipo are you most excited about seeing in the second half of this year rory i'll come over to you first what ipo you're looking forward to seeing
2: well, this is, this is one that I was very excited about, um, but <laughs> it turns out that, like, it appears absolute mania has taken hold, and the, the it, before it's even gone out, the initial price has basically doubled over the last uh, couple of days, um, and that company, I'm sure people already know who I'm talking about, is Snowflake. So, it, I mean, look, when I first laid eye on this company, I'm not that okay with the whole tech stack thing, but I did a bit of... Research, chatting to people who do know this stuff, and was basically told these guys are the bees' knees. This is the the company you want to work with, this company you want to own in the space in terms of tech infrastructure. And then you look at the numbers, you can see why investors are excited. They've got 121% year on year revenue growth, 158% net retention. You've got 56 companies paying over a million quid a year. And, you know, it's the numbers are fantastic. The business looks tip top, but I have no idea what's going to end up what on his IPO. I think it's yeah. it's going to probably be at an outrageous price that we wouldn't be able to justify. But you were yeah. blaming so.
1: you were blaming Warren Buffett for
2: that, weren't you? Yeah. Well, he just back off sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's let some of the rest of us get in on the ground floor, oh, buddy.
3: Yeah. So <laughs> rich.
2: Well, he just anytime Warren Buffett gets involved in a business, it's just like everyone has to get involved in it. It's a pretty big buy signal, yeah. Absolutely, it's great great when you own a business and he gets involved afterwards, but when he does (laughs) it before you, you're
1: like. But now he's getting them when they're still private, which is which is pretty annoying. (laughs) Um, So, Emmett what company are you looking forward to seeing IPO?
3: Yeah, well, I am very much looking forward to seeing Snowflake for all the reasons that Rory outlined. But I'm going to go with Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, a business I think everyone knows. I'd say all our listeners know it. I've stayed in about 20 Airbnbs. Um, apparently, uh, there are around 6 million hosts and experiences available on the platform. They have pretty much smashed into 160 plus countries. They um, are a business that I admire greatly and know uh, quite well, um, as do most of our listeners. Uh, and I think the Airbnb flotation is one that's... Um, is different to most of the others we'll see this year because it's a truly known global brand. And um, I think in its last funding round, which was an internal down round around April of this year, they were uh, valued at was around $26 billion. And previously, they were around $31 billion. So what, in fact, market cap they'll have on IPO day remains to be seen. I'd hazard a guess something between... 40 and 60 billion dollars I mean Uber is I don't know it's probably around 70 billion 80 billion at the moment and I i don't like and I shouldn't have even used Uber in the same sentence as Airbnb because they are so entirely completely and utterly different but I guess in the sharing economy a lot of people draw on that but I think that Airbnb is today in the year 2020 analogous to um, you know Coca-Cola when it floated 101 years ago that it basically was category creator, creating category defining already a global brand. And I think that people who buy shares in Airbnb at this, in this stage, in 101 years will be really happy they did so <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe their children or grandchildren might be happy yeah 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 that's it from today's stock club don't forget about all the great new stuff in the my wall street app in the moment including that stock of the month podcast about peloton if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of stock club make sure to get in touch you can find us as always on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my com that's pod at my com don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That will really help us out. From all of us here, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Research your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at hyundai.ie.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.